Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Dana, thank you for your encouraging words on Mother's Day. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here. I'm thankful to be here. It's been a crazy morning. It's been a crazy week. So I'll just give you guys a quick update. So I was gone Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week to an Acts 29 event where I got to spend time with uh, 10 other uh, pastors that are uh, lead pastors in the Acts 29 West network. So west of the Rockies. And so they're men from Colorado, New Mexico, just from all over. And it was just a great, great time to get to spend time with those guys. We talk through uh, what's working in our churches, what we need prayer for, what's going on. And then we uh, talk through uh, uh, just a time to encourage one another, actually. And so it, it, was, it was a great time. But then I came back from that, and then Thursday uh, is the day that I uh, write my sermons on. And so I tried to power through as, as best I could to write a sermon on Thursday. And then uh, Friday, I had uh, school all day up in Portland. And then yesterday, I was down in Roseburg uh, yesterday evening because I was uh, speaking at a men's event down in Roseburg. So I got back from that at almost 10 o'clock last night. If you guys know anything about me, I am uh, early to bed. And so 10's pushing it. So 10's crazy. That's a crazy night. Got to bed late, which meant that I got up later. And another thing you could know about me, my wife could uh, testify to this, is that I'm very routine in the morning. And so my, my, my morning routine was just already thrown for a loop because of what time I got up. And so I got up, did my routine as best as I could, tried to love my wife this Mother's Day and celebrate her before leaving the house. And then uh, when I got to my office, because my laptop had died, so I couldn't look at my notes yesterday. I opened it up. Oh, my charger was there. I opened it up, and I'm like, good. Charger's here. Hook up the laptop. Pull up my notes so I can have a little bit of time to go over that and, and really prepare for today. And I don't know where my notes are at. There's Ecclesiastes basically 1 through 10 and every other thing, and Ecclesiastes 11 is nowhere to be found. And like that's never happened to me before. And so I was like, this is great. And so I'm looking, and I'm like, what do I have? I got, I got my Bible. And I got a whiteboard in front of me. So I got, <laughs> I got notes. I don't want you guys to panic. This is like, uh, like I think one-on-one in communication is don't tell your audience you don't have notes and, and create panic in the room. Yeah, and create nervousness. I don't want you guys to be nervous for me, okay? Because I got notes. I drew it out on my whiteboard this morning and took a photo of it. So that's what I got. But ultimately, I want to say this. I have the word of God. And I think I have more confidence this morning than maybe ever before in the word of God. Because even Isaiah says, uh, in the book of Isaiah, it says that, that God's word will not come back void. And so the reality is, 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 is that uh, I can have an outline, but the text, the word of God is the outline. And so I am, I'm going to preach the word of God. I believe in the word of God. I stand on the word of God. And ultimately it's the word of God and the gospel that has the power to save and transform lives. Not my uh, crafty outline and all my notes and stuff like that. So I'm actually excited to be up here. I want to tell you guys, it's been a crazy week, but it's been filled with a lot of good stuff. And so just know, I would tell you guys, if I'm not at a good spot right now, I'm really encouraged and I'm at a good spot. And so I'm thankful for the week. It's been a really good week. And so, yeah, the other craziness, which will kind of roll us right into the book of Ecclesiastes, is that I, the reason I was here, I was so late here this morning is I got a text late last night from a friend whose father's in the hospital. He has uh, a flail chest, which is several broken ribs, and, and he broke his back in several places. And so he's in the ICU. And so I was over there before I came here and... His name is Jess. You guys can pray for Jess. But uh, I talked to him, and uh, 
for a little bit. It's painful for him to talk, but he said, man, I, I had plans in a week or two to go and do this in the desert and to go and do this. And I think the reality of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been in now for coming up on three months, is that there's this, there's, there's an author who's actually writing the words of this guy named Koheleth. That's the Hebrew word, which means preacher or teacher. And so this author is writing down everything this wise preacher is saying. But what he's trying to say to us over and over again, he actually says that he uses this Hebrew word called hevel 38 times, which means not meaningless. It actually means vanity. It means smoke and vapor. So over and over and over again, he's, he's trying to communicate that you're trying so hard to get your hands around life and grab hold of life. But it's hevel because everything is smoke and vapor and it'll just go right through your fingertips. So as much as we want to think that we're in control of life, we're not. And so we've titled this series, The Gospel Gives Meaning. Why? Because we believe that the gospel gives meaning to hevel, to vanity, because no longer in life do we feel this desperate need to be in control. No longer in life is it about us grabbing hold of the gifts of God and trying to use those as hard as we can to give ourselves worth and meaning and identity. But what the preacher is trying to convey to us is that the gift of God is that we can find ultimate meaning in life from God and through the gospel, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so no longer does the, uh, do the gifts define us, but now we can find our ultimate hope and meaning in the gift giver. No longer are we searching in all the world for what the world has to offer. Now we find our hope and our meaning in who created the world. And so that's what he's trying to convey. That's where we pick up this morning. And so if there's a word that I want you guys to remember and walk away preaching to yourselves, it's this just one word today, and it's live. L-I-V-E, live. We're going to look at it through three different categories. It's going to be live generously, live fearlessly, and live joyfully. I believe the text supports that in these three categories. So let's pray. Let's dive into the word and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks and you're a God who has spoken. I thank you for the good craziness of this week, but I thank you that I'm, I'm, I'm literally able to stand right here, right now, with a church family that I don't deserve to be a part of and preach a gospel that I'm unworthy to declare. I thank you that your grace has made me worthy. I thank you for uh, salvation that has come through Jesus. I praise you that, Lord, you've given worth to anyone who puts their trust and faith and hope in you. I pray that we would live and live fearlessly, live generously, but live joyfully in Christ. Speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 11, verse 1 in the book of Ecclesiastes says this, Cast your bread upon the waters. For you will find it after many days. Cast your bread upon the waters. Again, we're in this section of Ecclesiastes that has kind of these short pithy sayings and, 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 and it has uh, these uh, proverbs. And so sometimes these proverbs are really difficult to understand because we, we're, we're, we're trying to understand them in our context. And so when we read that, we go, soggy bread, that's a little weird because we don't understand what it means to cast your bread upon water. Some other translations can actually help out here and one other translation actually uh, reads to ship your grain upon the waters. And so cast your bread, we know this, that bread back then had monetary value. It was, it, it was what you lived on, but it's also what you could trade because you lived in a trade culture. And so you would trade your grain, you would give your grain. And so you, you could read this actually as not just cast your bread upon the waters, but ship your grain over the seas. 
And then it says in the latter part of this verse that you will find it after many days. So the call here that Koheleth, this preacher, this teacher is giving, is he's saying, look, give your grain away. Ship it across seas. I think contextually we could say that that is a great verse or a great call for us to support missionaries spreading the gospel all over the world. But we could also just say very simply, it's a call for the Christian to live a generous life and give things away. When you meet, uh, mention money in church, someone once said that it makes people funny, and I think that's true. And so I'll say this, that I'm not talking about generosity through only the lens of money, which is what, uh, sometimes what we think. I would give you four categories that I believe that we are called to be generous in. I believe, you, uh, since we said money, yes, money, but time. Time is another one. I talked to a, uh, a woman who's a, a children's director up at a, uh, a, a very affluent church in Lake Oswego. And I said, what's that like? And she's like, oh, we got, we, people write checks all day. Like we are, we have more money than we know what to do with. I was like, so, uh, that's nice. <laughs> are you guys look, looking to support a smaller church plant? So I was like, what's your problem, right? And she's like, oh, we, we just can't give any, uh, we just can't talk anyone basically into giving any of their time. They'll write checks all day because that's easy for them. Here, take this. Money's nothing. But given time, nah, it's not happening. Very difficult to give up time. A, an analogy that would work is this, is, is that imagine you are a, uh, a young person who plays baseball or softball. And what you desperately want is you want a dad who's there at your games, right? But imagine this. Imagine that you have the best jersey. In fact, your dad buys the entire team the best jerseys, the best hat. You look like the Oregon Ducks. All the nice stuff. Game after game, you got all the nice gear. And you tell your dad, dad, what I really want is I would just like you to actually to show up to my game sometime. I would like some of your time. And your dad's response is, but I've bought everything for this team. And a child's response could be like, yeah, dad, but I actually, I want your time. And I, I think we misunderstand the, the, the value, the monetary value that time is. And so I would say money, time is another one. I would say non Cash resources, gifts and talents that you have. There's people in this room that have many gifts and talents. You know, we have woodworkers. We just have people that can do a lot of stuff, and we'd say those are areas that we can be generous with. Last, I would say relationally. I think relationally is different than time, and here's what I mean. I think we should give ourselves relationally and be generous relationally. The reason why that is different than time is because you can actually show up to serve on a Sunday morning and have hardly any contact with anyone. In a sense, you can just check a box and somewhat believe that your service to the church is what make it, it's, it's, what make, it's what's making you right with God, which is actually completely false. And then you don't have any interaction relationally. There's not an investment that's being made there. And so there's something more that takes place. There's an, a relational investment where we can give ourselves to people relationally. And so I believe 
if we go back to verse one, to cast your grain or ship your grain, what he's saying is there's this call that if you actually want to live life and live life well, to live generously, to give yourself. I believe that Christians should be the most charitable people on the face of the earth because you understand that Christ gave everything for us to have everything in him. I also believe Paul quotes Christ and he says that it's better to give than to receive. I believe that's true. You've given gifts and watched the, the joy of giving gifts to people and, and, and that creates a joy in you. So I'll take God at his word to say that God's not calling us to live generously because it's meant to rob us of joy. I would say God's calling us to live generously because it actually fills our life with more joy. But here's the thing. I used to have this backward view of generosity to where I, I believed something that went like this. If I give a lot of stuff and time and money and stuff like that, then basically what God's going to do is, is just bless me. Like I'll probably end up with a mansion or something like that. But I think when God's words talk on us about the treasure that we get, I think here's, here's what that means is that when I let loose of things in my life that I have my hands gripped around, then that means that I'm, I'm, I'm saying no to that, or I'm, 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 I'm loosening that, or I'm letting go of that. Why? Because in that moment, what I'm doing is, is I'm saying, I'm letting go of this because I'm going to take greater hold to the everything that I have in Jesus Christ. And so I think the giving is more about actually releasing and letting control of something and taking hold of the everything that we have in Jesus Christ. And so it's a way that we practice at. It's the way that we do that. In the same way, we say, why do we fast? So that we can say no to ourselves, and so we can say yes to the everything we have in Christ. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. What, what does he mean? Well, seven is the number of perfection, and eight means take it to that and then to the mm degree, as some, some would say. And so give generously to how much? Do you know that the self-righteous religious person in this room, anytime we talk about giving time, generosity, here's what the self-righteous instantly do. You say, how much? Because what you know is that if you can line out for me, pastor, how much that I need to do, I'll do that and a tad more and then I'll know I'm good, safe. And so I'll exceed that mark and know that I'm trusting in that. And he blows that up in the same way that Christ blows that up as well when, when, when we get to the New Testament. By, by setting the bar so high for interpreting the law to say, uh, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we have to, we're driven to Christ to go, man, we can't do that. It's the same way he's saying, what does generosity look like? Give perfectly and then give a little bit more. And then he says, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Why would he say that? The call to give is that we don't know how many days that we have left. And so we can invest our time, our energy, our resources into others and into the kingdom, or we can take everything and grip hold of it like this. Next, I would say that Koheleth, the, the preacher, the voice in this is, is calling us to live fearlessly. In verse three, it says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He's just making a statement of the obvious. That's what this is. He's saying, look, clouds, they're full of rain and they empty themselves on the earth wherever they want. You are out of control of that process. Clouds come, they go, they are filled with rain. They, they will dump that rain wherever they want. You are not in control of that. And, but then he goes on to say, it's the same thing with tree, uh, trees fall. They fall where they want. Sometimes they fall on houses. Sometimes they fall on everything that we've put our trust and our hope and our faith in in life. And tragedy happens, storms hit, things go awry. But then what does he say? Verse four, he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. 
What's he saying? That if you are someone who's sitting around and waiting for the prime moment and opportunity for the wind to be right, perfectly right before you plant your seed, if you're trying to gauge the clouds, engage the weather and see what everything's going on, if you're waiting for just a, the, the perfect circumstances, then you're actually someone who's paralyzed by fear. You're not going to sow, and in fact, you're not going to reap. And I think for, for many of us, the thought of failure paralyzes us. Fears overtake our lives. Once was speaking at a high school, and one of the questions from the high schooler was, what do you do when you fail in life? We, we, we weren't allowed to share the gospel, and so uh, I said, how about you celebrate when you fail in life? And I said, because at least failure shows that you're trying something. And I think for many people, we just pull back from everything, business adventures, whatever you want to fill in the blanks here, we live lives paralyzed by fear, and fear takes hold of our lives. And I believe the call for those believe, let me say this, for the Christians and the non-Christians in, in the room, I believe that the preacher all through this book, this is a great book for Christians and non-Christians. I would encourage you to read it. And I believe that speaks true for both people. I believe that the answer that's provided through Christ and, and what Christianity offers to how do we, what do we do with this fear is this. First John 4.18. There's no fear in love. Why? Because perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And so what do we know as a child of God? That we cannot be, we will not be punished for our failures because Christ was punished for our failures on the cross. And so that fear that we have of doing anything that creates this paralysis gets removed in the gospel because in Christ, we cannot be anything other than successful because we get his success and he takes our failure. Verse five, he's building on this as well. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. What's he doing? He, he's just letting you know like, hey, just so you know, you're, you're living fearfully and what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to control and I'm sure you guys have met controlling people. They're just not super pleasant to be around. I know I have control issues. And so as you try to control stuff, then what you do is you paralyze yourself from ever doing anything because you were trying to just dial in everything so that it's perfect and you can put your trust and confidence in that. And, and he's actually trying to do here, I believe exactly what happens in the book of Job. He's trying to say, hey, you don't, you don't even know what takes place in the womb like, you can't figure that out. But God starts to question uh, Job in Job 38. He says, were you, uh, were, <laughs> where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Like, Job and his friends are trying to make sense of, of God, but the reality is God's infinite. And he, he asks him more questions. Have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? He's doing the same thing. He's, he, he's, he's stating that, look, you're out of control. You're, you're, you're trying to govern your life, but you're actually out of control. In fact, you can't make sense 
of how bones are created in the womb. You know that we know this, that in my hand I have 2.5 billion cells that are, that are all smaller than a grain of sand. But if all of these cells that were in my right hand were the size of a grain of sand, then my right hand would be the size of a school bus. And so if I put both of my hands together, I actually almost make up through the cells that are in two of my hands, the world's population. And so, yes, we can look scientifically at some stuff and say, we can make sense of this, but, but actually, do we know in the womb exactly how the cells break apart right at the right time to make an ear and to make a toe and to do these things? And he's saying, you don't know that. Since you don't know this very basic thing of how life begins, why are you trying to control everything in your life to determine the outcome? Live fearlessly, trust God, who's good. In this verse six, he says, in, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What's he saying? I don't believe this is a literal morning. I believe it's for the young and it's for the old. It's for the youth and for the wise. Is that read several commentaries on this, and I believe that the way that this passage goes, he's talking to the youth and to the the elderly. And he's saying that in the morning while you're young, sow your seed, and at evening when you're older, with, don't withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Say this. The call to live fearless is for the young and for the elderly. And, and, and I'm going to say this graciously, but also with a ton of encouragement, is that I'm thankful for our older generation inside this church that I feel like is engaged to the mission field and living for the kingdom of God. I am believe that we have people in our church that are incredible disciple makers, and I'm thankful for that. I think, sadly enough, what does take place inside of the church is that for the evening or for the elderly crowd is that sometimes the letterman's jacket is hung up, and then the, there's a removal. And what he's saying is that you don't actually know what God's doing in, in, in your youth, in, in, in ministry, as you disciple, as you do stuff, and you don't know what he's doing when you're older. So keep planting seeds. Keep discipling people. Because God might do the greatest work in your life later on in life, not, not just in the beginning when you're filled with youth. And so live fearlessly. Now we transition, verse 7, into live joyously. He says, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. They wrote that for, he wrote that for Oregonians, I'm convinced. Specifically people in Eugene. Do you know what's being communicated here? is that God's created us as, 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 as human beings who find pleasure and that we can find pleasure in what it is to go out on a, on, on a summer morning and have the sun hit our face or hit our back. We, this, this rings home to us as Oregonians. Like there's people in the world where they might just skim past this, but like we get this. We can feel this passage that light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. We love the sun, and, 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 and the, the sun is a gift from God that we can actually live joyfully, and we can enjoy the sun. We can enjoy a Sunday morning. We can enjoy the sun any morning. He's saying that that's actually a good thing. So verse 8, so if a person lives many years, here's again where he's talking about the young and elderly, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. What's he saying here? 
several translations of this. And then several commentaries of this. I believe here's what he's communicating. Whether you live many years or you live a few years, the call from God is to rejoice in them all. And that we're to remember that the days of darkness will be many and all that comes is vanity. In other words, he's not giving us his theological viewpoints on what the afterlife is. What he's saying is just know that death is coming for all and you'll be in the grave where it's dark and that's going to be there for a long time. We know that for those in Christ, we are, will be resurrected in him. But what he's saying is that whether you live a short time or a long time, enjoy the life that you have. How do I know that? Look at verse nine. Rejoice. That's an imperative. If you read this in the Hebrew, it is an imperative. Rejoice, it's a command. O young man in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things God will bring you into judgment. Out of everything I've said so far, I feel like this, this, this should cause a pause. There is a command in God's word to rejoice. I wish I had my notes because there was one guy who's a uh, uh, commentator, and he said that, that this, this, is, this is not mere oversight. If we read God's command to rejoice, it is actually breaking a divine imperative that we are called to be people that are joyful. In fact, John Piper says that the, the overarching theme that runs through the Bible, the command that appears more than any other command, more than, more than the things that we're not supposed to do, is this theme. Rejoice. Be joyful, be glad, be merry. He even says that when it's the fear knots, the fear knots are driven by a rejoicing and a gladness that comes by being in God. And so I don't believe this is something, and, and I believe actually Israel breaks this. We see this in Deuteronomy and, and they get rebuked. And I believe that, that what we see here is that we're supposed to take this so seriously that at the end of the verse, it says, just know that all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That we're not just judged for the, for the crazy licentious sins that we oftentimes think about. We're actually judged and brought into judgment for what our lives look like as far as reflecting joyfulness. Crazy. Why? This isn't a prosperity thing, but God is committed to our joy. He's committed to our happiness. How do I know that? To, to say that he's not would actually go against the Bible because Jesus in, in, in John 10, 10 says this, that I came not, not that you would just have life, but have it what? Perisus, abundantly, which means in the Greek, extraordinary. That's what Christ said. I also don't think this is a call where, where, where the Bible is going to contradict itself. It's not a call for licentious living. It's not a call to go rogue. It's, it's to say that rejoice and do this with obedience, obeying the commands of God, obeying the law of God, and walk in that. And I believe that the heart, like Augustine said, that truly loves God is going to walk in obedience. I think that's why David in Psalm 19 talks about the law of God. He says, uh, he calls it sweeter than honey. The drippings of the honeycomb, moreover, by them, talking about the law, is your servant worn, and keeping them there is great reward, he says. So what do we do with this? A scripture calling us to be joyful? I know this, and I won't be trivial, that there's people in the room that are having a hard time hearing that right now. And I also know this, that as soon as I said be joyful, you're like, great, one more command that I'm really 
really failing at. So now I feel this extra weight because my life doesn't reflect joyfulness. I feel this extra weight because I'm not doing that. So what do we do with that? Look, look, look at verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. Another translation reads, remove grief and anger from your heart and put away evil from your body. Pain actually is translates here as evil. So he's saying, remove the anger, remove the grief from your heart and put away the evil from your body. Why? Because we're called to live joyfully. This is not a clever saying. It goes without saying that those that live bitter, bitter lives, hoping that somehow their bitterness will impact the other person is, is quite foolish. So what do we do? I think there's, a, there's, there's two responses. If we're called to live joyously, knowing that, 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 that God commands that, here's our culture's response. I picked this up this morning. It's incredible. It's called the happiness formula. In fact, there are 125 easy ways to boost your well-being. And if you turn to page 42, which I can save you the cost of the magazine right now, it says, just try these six things. Build a strong social network. Uh, I think we'd all agree that friendship is something we probably struggle with. So just do that. Just build a strong social network. Be physically active. Uh, cultivate mindfulness. Uh, face all of your fears. I've been trying to face the fear of height since I've been like two years old. It's getting worse. Find a sense of purpose and embrace change, which none of us are really that good at. So, hey, he, I, I'm saying this like somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but here's the reality is that our culture is searching for joy. And our culture is searching for happiness. And so we're pushing magazines on everyone about 125 ways that you can actually find joy and happiness. You can try all these steps. So that's the one option that you have. But here's the reality. If you are created in, by God in his image for the creator, then I, I'm saying this so boldly and so blunt to you. That you will never experience joy and true deep joy, true meaningful joy to the depths that your soul was created for unless you find it in your creator. Because if he created you for relationship with him, then the one place you are going to find full joy and purpose and meaning and satisfaction is in your creator, not in 125 easy tips. Okay, great. How does that help me? You know what Jesus says? I love this. In Matthew 5, 17, I didn't come to abolish the law. Meaning this, I didn't come to say stop being joyful. What, what did Jesus say? He said, I actually came to fulfill the law. That you're, the, the command to you to be joyful isn't a burden that you carry on your back. It's a burden that Christ carried on his back and took it to the cross. The command for you to be joyful is a, is a command that Christ fulfilled. In fact, he lived a perfectly joyful life. Can you imagine that being omniscient, meaning you know everything and knowing that all of your friends are basically going to bail out on you, betray you, and that you're going to face the, the, the cross for a wicked humanity who's going to rip out your beard, spit on you, and curse you. But he lived joyfully. Why? Because his joy was not rooted into the circumstance of a situation. His joy was rooted in being a child of God. And I would say this, that how we can do this and how we can live joyfully, I'll start wrapping up here. 
is we can live joyfully by doing what Paul says. He calls us to put on Christ, to put on Christ. He actually calls us through this language to take off things that are not of Christ and to put on what is Christ. So he's, he's using a clothing language because we can understand a clothing language. And he's telling us to put this on. Paul is not saying that put on Christ, meaning that you need to keep getting resaved and you need to keep becoming a child of God. He's saying since you are a child of God and since you have a holiness and a perfection and a righteousness that is found yours in Christ through faith alone, by grace alone, then put that on and wear that. But here's what we put on instead. Fear, shame, and guilt. Three things. So please pay attention here. We've talked about the way that fear can paralyze our lives. Watch our children. Children aren't worried about fear. They're playing in the backyard. Why? Because they have a trust that their parents will provide. As Christians, we can trust that our God is good and that he provides. That fear is removed through perfect love. I see that in my daughters. They're not concerned with all the things that we are because they know their parents love them. Two, shame. This is a big one. If we're going to live joyful lives and live joyously, I think part of the removing the grief and the sorrow and the vexation that comes from life is to stop putting on shame and start taking it off and putting on Christ. And here's what I mean. Shame is fundamentally different from guilt. Guilt is there's something wrong with what I just did. Shame is that there's something inherently wrong with me. That I am broken, that I am flawed that I am defective to the core. And there are people in this room that feel that. And they have felt that their whole lives. One of the men last night after speaking came up to me and, and said, there's, there's been this thing that I've believed my whole life. And I was like, what is that? He goes, that, 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 that I'm just a liability. That I'm broken. That I'm flawed. That is shame. And the reality is, as many of us continue to put that on, what is the solution found in Christ? Is Christ said that, that, that there's such shame in the cross, but he said, no, 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 I despise whatever shame that is. I'm going to take that shame on. And through faith in me, I will make you flawless and shameless. And so you need to put that on because that's what I offer. Is not shame, but shamelessness, flawless. Not, not a defective, but a child. Last one is guilt. There's people in this room that feel like at any second of every day, basically, that God's just waiting to strike them dead or to crush them because they've lived with that sort of, I want to please someone my entire life and I haven't done that. And that person's made me very aware of it. And so we feel this constant guilt in our life. Guilt uh, is, is condemnation. Did you know that Romans 5.1 says that you are justified which, which actually means, it's a doctrine that, that, that means this, that you are legally declared guiltless before God, Romans 5.1. And so that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, what you put on there is, then I put on the guiltlessness of Christ. I'm saying this today, and here's where I'm ending with this, is that I know this firsthand, that, that with moms in the room, there's a lot of mom guilt. So let me talk to the moms. Happy Mother's Day. I'm super thankful for all of you guys, even those of you that have babies in the wombs right now. You are a mother. I'll say this, there is a ton of guilt that, that, that comes from motherhood. I felt guilty this morning, preaching to myself. I told my wife, I just feel guilty. I've been absent all week and running, and I don't feel like I'm celebrating you well and, and doing a lot of things well. I just feel guilty. And as moms, we have this 
we, <laughs> you, you have this guilt that, that I'm not doing enough, that I might be messing up my kids' lives, that, that, that I'm short-fused, that I'm saying this, that I'm angry at times. What you need to hear and what you need to do is to put on Christ and, and, and put on Christ. And what that is, is put on the fact that there is no condemnation for you in Christ. Put on the fact that you are guiltless. Put on the fact that, that, that in Christ and what you have is a God that looks at you and deals with you not based upon your motherhood, but based upon being a child who's secure in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.